Welcome to a podcast series, Learning About Children and Youth with Problematic Sexual Behavior with Renee Roman and Jenny Almanzar, trainer and consultants for the National Center on the Sexual Behavior of Youth. Resources from this podcast are supported in part by a National Child Traumatic Stress Network Category 2 grant, number H79SM085083, sponsored by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Views expressed in these podcasts do not necessarily reflect the views or policies of the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration or the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, as well as the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention. Hello, and welcome to our third in a series of podcasts on working with children with problematic sexual behavior. Today, Renee Roman is going to talk to us about what if no one has been trained in your community and what is it that you do uh, when you have uh, children with problematic sexual behavior that may need services. So hello, Renee, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, Jenny, yeah, I'd I'd love to. Um, First of all, I'm a licensed social worker in the state of New York. Um, I've been working in the arena of Um, children and trauma my entire career. Um, So, you know, over, over 30 years at this point. Um, For the bulk of my career, I ran a child advocacy center, you know, where we provided all services within the advocacy center, um, you know, uh, forensic interviewing and uh, therapy to children who'd been impacted by abuse, legal advocacy, legal accompaniment, um, the whole, a whole range of services. And then in the course of my work within the advocacy center, we also brought in uh, work with school-aged children and adolescents who had engaged in problematic uh, sexual behavior. So was trained in that arena. After leaving the advocacy center, um, I went on to do some consulting work with uh, the National Center on the Sexual Behavior of Youth, or NCSBY, where I am a trainer and a consultant. Um, I work in training folks in the adolescent model um, to work with adolescents who've engaged in legal or problematic sexual behavior, as well as as a senior leader facilitator, helping individuals within communities prepare their communities to be able to uh, work with this population to look at how they're responding to youth and families when uh, problematic sexual behavior has occurred um, and sort of change communities to make um, them better, uh, better able to serve and work with these these youth and these families. Um, I also work in the arena of um, working with the military and the military's response to children with problematic sexual behavior. In addition, I'm also a project director for Fordham University, uh, where I work with a program called Sexual Abuse Dynamics and Intervention Training, essentially training all CPS workers within New York State and foster care workers about how to respond to sexual abuse allegations. Thank you, Renee. It sounds like you're in a good position to help us understand our topic today about how to, uh, you know, what to do if no one's been trained in the community and uh, services need to be um, identified. So going into our first question, what is the best treatment for a youth with problematic sexual behavior? 
You know, it, that's a great question, Jenny. I think that what we need to first think about is um, the concept of evidence-based treatment, right? We need to think about, are, is there, are there evidence-based treatments out there for this population? And we're really fortunate that, that there are. And when I speak about evidence-based treatment, I mean, generally what I'm talking about is, is treatment that has been um, shown by scientific evidence to be successful in treating a specific problem. Um, that it comes recommended by professional associations, that it's been peer reviewed. Um, and it not only combines the clients, the, the clinicians' skills um, in the area, but also take into account clients' values and preferences in the work that we do. So we're, we're going to look for what are some evidence based treatments that are out there. And then if we think about that, the first one that comes to mind is. Um, the acronym is PSBCBT, Problematic Sexual Behavior Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. And this is really taught by NCSBY. Um, and we have curriculums in preschool, school age, and the adolescent model. So specific ways that have been shown to be successful in working with those populations. Um, and this is obviously when problematic sexual behavior is the presenting issue, right? This is the primary presenting issue that, that needs to be addressed. There's also TFCBT PSB, right? Because we are alphabet soup around here. And that is trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy for problematic sexual behavior. And this is, you know, when a child may present with problematic sexual behavior, but they also present with a significant trauma history. And that trauma really is the primary presenting issue and needs to be addressed so we can provide TFCBT if we've been trained in that model along with and in conjunction working in parts of problematic sexual behavior. And again, that specialized training is also offered through NCSBY. And then finally, there's MST-PSB, which is multi-systemic therapy for problematic sexual behavior. And this also is an evidence-based intensive home-based treatment model. You know, it's for youth ages 10 to 17 who have been exhibiting um, problematic sexual behavior as well as other high-risk behaviors. And those high-risk behaviors um, you know, can include any number of things, including substance abuse, um, children who are struggling at home, at school, in the community, and really require a very intensive treatment um, around that. And MST-PSB can be found through, if you Google MST-PSB, you'll find the, the resources for where that training can, can be provided. Um, so those are, are some of the, the evidence-based treatments that we're aware of that are out there to address this problem. And I think equally as important as understanding what are the evidence-based treatment models or the best practice models that are out there, I think it's also important for people to have a good understanding of um, what is not appropriate treatment for youth with problematic sexual behavior. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, it, it's a real simple answer, um, although it, it gets more complicated as we look at it. What we don't want to do is we don't want to take a model that was created for adults who have engaged in sexual abusive behaviors toward children and apply that model to children who are engaging in problematic or illegal sexual behaviors. Um, it's really important not to sort of confuse the two populations and think that, well, if it works for adults, it's going to work for kids and adolescents. Um, we need to remember that the drives, the triggers, the things that cause adults to engage in illegal sexual behavior, sexually abusive behaviors are very, very different 
than those that may um, lead youth children to engage in these behaviors. And so we want to make sure that we're not taking adult behavior, behavioral treatment programs and applying those to the children that we're working with. And so if somebody wanted to um, find a, a person who's been trained in this treatment, how would they go about doing that? Yeah, you know, uh, sometimes there's referrals within the community and you need to find providers, right? Folks who have the specialized training. Um, and the best place to do that is the NCSBY website. So ncsby.org. If you go on there and you actually um, do a query of providers in my area, you'll actually find that there's a, there's a map of not only the United States, but actually the world um, that will indicate where folks are located that are registered with us who have been trained in the adolescent model, the school age model, or the preschool model. And so there's, you know, we get common questions um, where someone might say there is nobody in my community who has this training and their fear that the court may place the child or the youth away from their home if they can't provide the, the training in their community. What should those people do if that's a question that they have? Yeah, such a hard place to be. I would say the very first thing that someone wants to do is, is to go go to those websites, right? Look um, and make sure that there, there isn't anybody within their community who has the training and has met fidelity to be able to provide any of the evidence-based treatments that we've talked about earlier. Um, if there truly is no one available, um, you know, we really need to kind of consider a number of factors sort of before we, we take on can I provide this kind of service? First of all, you're going to want to find someone that you can consult with, someone who has been trained. If they can't provide that treatment to the youth within your community, um, and you know we're really fortunate that even though people may not live in or next to us where families can get to, that a lot of times this treatment can also be provided um, through telehealth. So when looking, um, you know, make sure you're looking, if you're looking within your state, is there anyone within your state who can provide telehealth? But if there truly is nobody available, reach out, find, is there someone that you can consult with, someone you can talk to, um, and maybe can provide some support, some guidance in, in what to do in the situation, someone you can talk through. Um, some things to consider, some things to kind of take into account are, what is the behavior that's involved? Um, are we talking about children who are, you know, engaging in um, looking behaviors or um, masturbatory behaviors? Are we talking about children who are engaging in intrusive behaviors? Um, you know, the behavior is important to think about. Um, and how do you feel as a therapist about addressing that behavior? Um, because at the end of the day, problematic sexual behavior is a behavior that children have engaged in, right? And as therapists, we have, most of us, if we work with children or with youth, have been trained with how to address children's behaviors. So I don't want to, you know, make the idea that because it's a sexual behavior, it's scary and we can't address it and we can't talk about it and we can't deal with it because that takes someone who only knows how to do this work. Um, we can address behaviors if we have a comfort level with it and we're willing to kind of seek the appropriate guidance, support, training in that area. But again, we need to take more factors into consideration. Not only is what is that behavior, but is the child who's been impacted by this behavior, are they within the same home? 
um, if they are within that home, our first thought has to go to how does the impacted youth feel about um, this youth either staying in their home, remaining in their home, or do they need to leave the home? We always need to take into consideration the impacted child and how and their their physical safety as well as their psychological safety, um, because that has to be our first priority and our first concern. And in thinking about that, we also have to think about how do the parents feel? How do the parents feel about the potential of this child remaining within the home um, or within the community? And do they feel capable of providing um, what's going to be appropriate supervision for them? And I'll speak a little bit about that in a second. Uh, we also need to think about if this is behavior that's occurred within the home um, or even within the community, how are the caregivers responding to this? How are they responding to that youth with problematic sexual behavior? Are they um, willing to accept that this behavior may have happened and may have occurred or in their total denial about this? Because this can really speak to whether or not parents can provide appropriate supervision um, and guidance to that youth. If they don't believe a behavior has happened, are they going to be providing a level of supervision um, and safety necessary to keep that youth safe in their home and in the community? Um, are they, have they responded in a really overly punitive manner, in a real shaming manner? Because we really need to think about, is it in the exhibiting child's um, psychological safety for them to remain in a home where there's a lot of shaming behaviors happening um, from caregivers, right? So again, what is their response? Or do we have a caregiver who accepts that this behavior may have happened and they are willing to provide the necessary support, supervision, guidance um, that's being requested of them? And in addition, they want to seek help and, and treatment for that child to help them to make better choices um, in, in the future. You know, after we think about all of those things, we need to think about... Um, has someone, has another organization within the community, Child Protective, for example, Child Welfare, stepped in and put a safety plan in place? Um, and a safety plan, you know, it can be covered in, 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 you can find different podcasts and webinars on this and in other areas. If you Google safety plans, you'll find um, some safety plans that are out there. Safety plans should not only highlight what children can't do, behaviors that they can't engage in, you know, such as, um, you know, being around other children when they're changing or sharing bathrooms during toileting times or bathing times, et cetera, but also things that they can do, behaviors that they can, can do, that they can watch a TV show with their sibling if there's adult providing eyesight supervision, you know, within the space or engage in board games, et cetera. So we want safety plans to address both of those things. And then if those safety plans are in place and have been created, are the caregivers both willing and able to follow those safety plans? Um, and not only are they willing and able to follow those safety plans, but is the youth who's engaged in the problematic sexual behavior able to and willing to follow safety plans? If we have folks that are not willing to um, abide by safety plans or follow safety plans, don't think that they're necessary, then what we're doing is we're creating an unsafe situation within the home for um, impacted children, but also exhibiting children and potentially also unsafe situations within the community. And that really requires a different response than can I provide therapy, right? So safety has to come first and that has to be our, our primary concern. If we've got 
adults that are on board and youth that are on board with the safety plans, safety plans are in place. Some other things to kind of take into consideration um, are when we think about that youth with problematic sexual behaviors, are they having any other underlying behavior problems? Um, are they having problems within the school and other spheres of their lives, school, the community? Um, what is their general behavior like in the home? Um, are they following adult direction or, you know, are they responding in aggressive manners to adults? Um, are there substance abuse issues for that youth? Are there underlying mental health um, concerns? Any of those things may also impact your decision about whether you're the appropriate person to provide um, treatment to this child, particularly if you haven't had specialized training in problematic sexual behavior. If you seem to have been able to make it past all of those questions that I've asked thus far, um, then you need to start thinking specifically about problematic sexual behavior. What do you know about PSB? Um, you know, what, what are your thoughts about the myths that are out there? What are your thoughts about, what have you managed to learn about providing treatment in this arena? Um, have you been able to seek information um, from the various sources that have been provided? through this podcast series, um, through NCTSN, through OJJDP, uh, the National Children's Alliance, NCA, or the NCSBY website itself. Um, and if you've been able to kind of find those resources and, and you've learned some about this, and it's gonna take a lot of work, right? It's, it's not something we can just sit down and read 20 minutes prior to someone walking into session. We've gotta do some real research to decide if we're the person who can provide this, if we have the ability to do that. Um, we also need to think about what are our own thoughts about this population. Um, and when all of that, um, all of those things have been done, we also have to then step back and remember our ethical obligations to our profession, whether you're a social worker or a psychologist or a licensed mental health um, provider, right? Uh, what, are, what do your ethics say about providing services and how you represent yourself? Um, we need to be transparent that this is not an area of specialty for me. Um, we need to be transparent with our clients, with our referral sources. Um, and we need to also ethically think, um, am I someone who can take this on? Have I provided, have I found appropriate individuals um, outside of my community that I can consult with that are willing to provide the supervision and the guidance necessary to do this work, um, you know, and if the answers to those questions are no, um, that we haven't been able to get adequate resources about the providing this treatment and we haven't been able to locate someone who can provide consultation with us, um, then as hard as the decision is to maybe tell our referral sources or the courts, I'm not able to provide this treatment, um, maybe ethically bound to make that call and make that decision. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's sadly, it's not an easy solution and um, resources to get training is, is um, you know, there's, there's a limited number of, of trainers in any of these evidence-based um, areas that we've talked about, the TFCBT, the MSTPSB, and the PSBCBT. Um, and so sometimes we have to recognize that we can't provide it. And, and sometimes we get the answer to those questions are, are yes, I, I've set myself up in such a way that I think that I can provide, um, you know, some, some treatment around this behavior um, and that I have good support and um, someone to consult with. 
um, and that I'm making all of my referral sources and the parents involved and the children themselves involved aware that um, this is not something that I've received specialized training in. Um, although PSB is a behavioral problem um, and therapists who work with, with youth should be competent in addressing behavioral problems, there's also this big body of evidence out there that says, you know, we have evidence-based treatment that works. Um, and when evidence-based treatment is available, um, that really needs to be our go-to. But each situation needs to be assessed and decisions need to be made on a case-by-case -case basis. So thank you for that information. Um, what if a provider is interested in becoming trained? Um, what are some steps they can take to prepare themselves and or maybe their community? Yeah, um, two, two very different things. I think that you know, what the provider needs to do is a lot of what I just talked about, really doing some, some thinking about themselves and their beliefs and thoughts about youth that have engaged in problematic sexual behavior. And, you know, for some, it's I can work with school-age kids, but I can't work with adolescents. For others, it's I can work with females, but I can't work with males. We really need to kind of do an internal search within ourselves, right, to, to decide what is our comfort level in this population. And, and I know that, Jenny, you've addressed this. Um, you'll be addressing this in a future uh, podcast, in our fourth podcast, about what someone might need to do and, and think through if they're interested in providing this treatment. So I would refer people um, to the, the fourth podcast in this series. Um, but I think when we're thinking about our communities, we also need to think about um, what are the myths that are, are out there? What do people believe? What do they think within the community? Who are we talking about? Um, and who are our champions within our communities? And when I speak about champions, I'm talking about for the people that are supportive of our community taking on this, this task, this population, this specialization, and really wanting to change how we address it. And there will be a webinar also in this series um, talking about um, how to make change within communities and what to think about when we're making change within our communities. Um, but again, it, it's, it's what do people know, finding adequate resources and information sharing this podcast series with people within your community. Um, there are videos through the National Children's Alliance. There are videos that can be found on the NCTSN website. Um, any of those videos, um, sitting in, and, and watching them as a, as a community change team, as a group of individuals who have come together, who have agreed that we need to change our practices or our policies around how we address problematic sexual behavior and start with watching some of those to get an understanding of what is problematic sexual behavior, what is illegal sexual behavior, um, and, and what can we do. And, and starting there would be my recommendation. And again, also visiting the, the websites that we spoke about earlier in this podcast, depending on if you're looking at um, PSB, CBT, or trauma-focused um, work around problematic sexual behavior or the MST PSB. Visiting those sites specifically, um, they'll be able to tell you when training is available, the cost of training, et cetera. Thank you so much, Renee. It sounds like even um, small steps towards change of things like even um, changing our language with how we talk about children with prominent sexual behavior could be a helpful start in preparing one's community or oneself for, for working in this area. So I thank you so much for this information today.
You're welcome. It's great being here. The National Center on the Sexual Behavior of Youth would like to thank you for listening to Learning About Children and Youth with Problematic Sexual Behavior. This podcast was brought to you by the National Child Traumatic Stress Network and Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. We hope you will enjoy each episode in the series. Thank you for listening and learning more about problematic sexual behavior. This is serious. There is hope.